When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Ross Gay, author of the essay collection, Inciting Joy. This is all fleeting for all of us. So maybe we ought to figure out how to love one another, you know? We'll be back with Ross Gay after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is poet and essayist Ross Gay. He is the author of four books of poetry, including Against Which, 
bringing the shovel down, beholding, winner of the Penn American Literary Gene Stein Award, and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. His first essay collection, The Book of Delights, was a New York Times bestseller. His new collection, Inciting Joy, explores how we can practice recognizing our connection to one another and how we expand that connection. The essays interrogate the link between sorrow and joy and reveal unexpected ways joy can manifest in our lives. Gay explores how he finds joy in the garden, in basketball, in grief, in masculinity, and in tears. He is open about his trepidation to sit with other people's pain and seeks to understand why. We began the discussion with me asking Ross Gay this question. I wanted to start by asking about sort of the relationship between poetry and essays and as a writer, how you maybe move between those spaces and where you see that they come together or where one of them maybe allows you to do something different? I feel like every time this question comes up a little bit, I feel like it probably is like one of the questions that people who write in in at least a couple of genres, people are curious about. And I think I probably answer it a little bit different every time. So here's another... (laughs) another iteration. I feel like, um, you know, with poems, I'm thinking about breath in a different way. You know, like I'm really like that line that working on that line, thinking about the line, thinking about how in a very sort of specific way, the line is going to be a kind of breath, you know, which means that the the poem is going to be a kind of body, you know, it's made up of breaths. That's like first and foremost in my it's not the only thing I'm thinking about at all, but it's like, I'm really thinking about that. And with essays, it's not on the level of the breath. It's on the level of something else. And I'm not sure what that is exactly. So that's like one first way to maybe think about it. The other thing that I would say though, is that whereas people often think of poetry as a more open sort of genre, like you can kind of do anything in a poem. I actually feel that essays are the more open thing you know like because like definitely definitionally an essay is just like an attempt or a try so you really the way i think about it is like you can almost do anything and call it an essay i could call any of my any of my poems could be sort of essays in a certain kind of way but when i'm writing poems um there is a different i think i think there's a different relationship to like um, inherited forms, actually, you know, maybe a more, more of a, a, a notion of like forms and, and variations inside of forms that is, that is a different relationship than I have to form, say, or inheritance with the essay. Maybe, you know, I'm not positive, but there's also a kind of unspooling that happens in both in poems and, and essays for me, but there's a different kind of unspooling that happens in essays. Yeah, you know, (laughs) vague, vague, vague. Yeah. Do you ever feel like it's touching different parts of your brain? I totally do. And and maybe that's the best way to put it. Like one, they touch slightly different parts of my brain. (laughs) And it's kind of because, and this is how I think of it. And when I write essays, it feels like I'm writing about, you know, like anything that's interesting to me, I'm writing about what I don't know, you know? Obviously, there's a ton of, you know, sort of the body of my knowledge is informing this, but I'm writing toward and around or whatever, what I do not know. Poems, too. But it feels like with poems, it's more. Like it's a more, it's a more unknowing. And when I think about that, and I kind of like try to argue with that with myself, myself, who's trying to argue that, says that it's partly it is that lion thing. It is that, it is that body thing or it is that music thing that poems are so like like the music is so so much part of the meaning in a poem and whereas I bring I think the same kind of ear to my essays I don't know that I would be inclined to say to have an essay or I haven't yet anyway where I really just let the music do the talking 
you know, where I might just say words that are sonically relating and sonically making a texture and sonically making some kind of coherent something to me, but do not have a kind of logical meaning. I don't know that I would, like I said, that's, that's kind of a common feature, I think, of the poems that I love, but also my own poems, time to time. And I, I don't quite do that in essays. So there's something about that too, which is like, it's different parts of the brain or different parts of the soul a little bit too. What is joy to you? I mean, I read, I've read your book. I read the introduction, but I'm curious in your own words, how you would describe what joy is. I think, you know, I think I can describe it pretty good now. I would say it's something like the, whatever you call it, the light or something that kind of emanates from us from the tethers, in fact, between us as we help each other carry our sorrows. I think that's joy. And I think that's why, I think it's it's a different notion of joy than I think we're often offered. I think often we're offered a, a version of joy that might be something like, you know, like momentary gladness or something, or that some kind of more fleeting thing. But I think joy is actually, or I'm thinking about joy as a kind of practice that you have to do perpetually to be kind of in practice of being, you know, witnessing our connection. And to me, the connection is among other things, our sorrow, not that we have the same sorrows, but that we all sorrow, which is also to say that it seems to me that joy for that reason is not outside of anyone's experience, potentially anyway. You're writing about maybe like a deeper, deeper form of joy than like the exuberant sense that a lot of us think about or like almost the joy that could feel like a drug. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. And I feel like it was reading that Zadie Smith essay, Joy. Um, like I've been thinking about this for a long time and I've had occasion to think about it because I wrote my third book of poems is called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. And then I had that book of delights, the book of short essays. I feel like, you know, just having a lot of people ask questions about that and myself wondering about that for years, you know, with my earlier thinking too, work, et cetera. But to come back to that Sadie Smith essay, where she sort of talks about some connection between joy and the intolerable. And in, in her essay, she's, that's sort of a reason that she, that's not the only reason, but that's, she's sort of like, she said, I don't can't remember exactly how she says it. But she's like, I think I've had six instances of joy in my life. And that's about enough. <laughs> It's a great essay, but uh, but I, lo- I love that definition. The joy, in fact, is not, you know, it might occasion exuberance. It might occasion all kinds of things. It might occasion crying, though, too, you know, like when we, you know, when we help our beloveds, you know, bury their beloveds or when we help our beloveds, you know, be buried. It's like that can occasion tears, but it can also occasion profound meaning and what I would call joy. I think one of the things that joy as I think about it, relies on or depends on is a kind of joy itself is a kind of disalienating emotion. It makes us understand that we're connected to one another. We're connected. There is connection. And I feel like we live in such a profoundly alienated and alienating culture in various ways. I mean, obviously there are moments where that really goes away. But um, even the fact that, you know, I'm so happy to be talking to you. Um, but we're talking over these devices that were made in ways by people we do not know, the conditions of their labor we do not know, embedded in these things are, you know, probably violence that we we do not understand. And there's another there's another version of this where we're sitting, you know, <laughs> across the table from one another and we're, you know, and you know, when your coffee gets low, like I pour some in and when my coffee gets low, you pour some in, you know? Um, But anyway, I feel like it makes perfect sense to me, given how alienated um, so many of us feel that, that joy might not, might not be the kind of thing that comes easily in a way. And also the one, like one of the questions I sort of ask again, again, is it might not be taken seriously. Because the the notion of being deeply connected to one another is, it feels like it's getting more and more, you know, pushed further and further away. Yeah. And I think this, this notion that you're talking about, these sort of tethers that like how the ways in which joy is linked to sorrow and maybe the inseparability of, of joy to this deep pain that we experience as, as humans and knowing what we've done to the earth and what we've done to our fellow humans. That's really important for, I think, the premise of the book. And I felt like so many of these essays came back to, to this simple 
human connection, like the touch of your cheek on your father's cheek when you're writing Mm -hmm. about his death. It goes back to this tender, flawed humanness and this tactile presence that you had with him. So if someone comes and reads the first essay about your dad's death, they'd be like, joy? Like, I don't get it. So can you talk a little bit about that? And if what I'm saying makes sense to you. It totally makes sense. And, and, and in a way, you know, for, for folks who haven't read the book yet, it's the first essay is basically about my father who was diagnosed with liver cancer in, you know, say January of 2004. And then he had died by, he died by May 10th of 2004. The, the essay sort of, in addition to other things, it sort of describes me moving back in with him um, and, and sort of being one of his, me and my mother, but, um, but my mom was working and I was at the moment, I was sort of mainly just coaching basketball and not writing a PhD. Um, so I was his caretaker and we had a, you know, a kind of rich and complicated life. Like, you know, we really butted heads. We really, <laughs> we, really <laughs> we had a hard time with each other, you know, but, you know, while also like really loving each other. And so the, the essay, I've thought about that. Like, it's interesting to start the book with an essay that is really sort of detailing the, the last months of my dad's life. As I think about that, I think that one is that as a, as a way to sort of introduce the conversation about joy to be like, we're talking about the gravest things. Like joy is among the gravest. Joy emerges from the gravest things. It emerges from the grave, in fact, you know? Um, and I also sort of, I think there's some question or something about me learning something about that connection, that fundamental connection, which is like me to my father, me to my mother, me to my brother, me to other people whose parents have died or will, me to other people whose beloveds have died or will. There's some question about that, but there's also a question about, you know, at the end of the essay, like the ways that I'm able to see things about my father that had he had he not gotten sick and died. Had he not gotten sick and me need to care for him, would have remained unknown to me forever. You know, which is a profound sorrow, and 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 it's uh, a source of joy as well. Like I got to understand my father better. This happened. You know, he died as we do, and in the course of that, you know, this relationship, which was really challenging for both of us, changed. You know, we got closer actually. Something you said earlier was like that joy is not as we see it, like it's not this ephemeral thing, but I'm feeling like when I think about all your essays sitting here right now and my own experience of joy is that part of joy that I've experienced that I think some of your essays are talking about is not that that joy itself is ephemeral, but the ephemera of existence, that that is what ties us to joy. Like if you see Aretha Franklin's amazing grace documentary, if you get to see Richard Pryor, if you're like hitting that perfect, like jump shot, part of the joy comes because we realize how mortal we are, that this is not forever. That's it. That's it. And that's sort of why I feel like you nail it. Like I think joy connects for that reason to things like love or to things like gratitude or to things that are like present, whether or not we acknowledge them or notice them or tap into them. And joy is just there. But I think what you're, what you're saying is exactly right. And also about those other, maybe grat- I think of joy and gratitude is very linked. And it's partly because of the ephemerality of our, of everything, the ephemerality of everything, which includes everything that we love, which means also everything that we will lose, you know, or however you relate to it, everything that will change, which for most of us will cause us some pain. And so in a way, like to be, to recognize that that is a, that is actually a common human condition and that that makes us common, you know, and that makes us able to be sort of with one another, that we are with one another, whether or not we acknowledge it, you know, we are with one another, whether or not we pay attention to that. So I feel like that feeling of joy is like this clue to, to be like, yo, this is all changing. Every second, this is changing. So how do we, how do we um, pay attention? It's like, pay attention. My buddy once made a a notebook for me, like a letterpress notebook. And, um, (laughs) and it said, he gave me two. One said, "Pay attention." And one said, "Pay attention, motherfucker." <laughs> and it's a little bit like joy is like that, you know. It's like this is all fleeting for all of us. 
so maybe we ought to figure out how to love one another, you know? Totally. And I think put investment in something you won't maybe be able to see, in some cases, the fruits of your labor. For example, in one of your essays, it's called Free Fruit for All, The Orchard, The Eighth Incitement. So each one of your essays, you have 14 and they're called a different incitement. And this one you're writing about, this woman who wrote her thesis about this free fruit orchard and she made it real. She brought the community together in Bloomington, Indiana, and you all worked together to create this free orchard. But you were thinking about your neighbor across the street who had this beautiful garden and bringing some of his um, cuttings to back to Indiana from Pennsylvania to, to plant there and that you were going to create something that you might literally not see the fruits of. And I'm wondering if you could read a little bit off of page 110. Yeah. So this is an essay about this project that I've um, been lucky enough to be a part of. And it's called the Bloomington Community Orchard. It's basically an orchard on an acre of land here that was started in, it was planted in um, October of 2010. And it's, this is sort of basically telling the story of the orchard, which I was so glad to do because I tell it all the time when I'm out and about and because I write a little bit about it. But the orchard was basically started, you know, it's the idea of this person named Amy Countryman and Amy kind of wrote this thesis, undergraduate thesis about, you know, food security and food sovereignty and things like that. And she, as a part of the project, she proposed an urban orchard and it eventually went up to the city. The city said, if you have enough sort of, you know, support from the community, we'll let you use an acre. And there was enough support. And then, you know, eight or nine months, we were planting an orchard. And the thing that's so moving to me is that I knew none of these people. You know, I'd seen a few of them around, um, you know, and there were like a hundred people at this call out meeting, uh, people involved in the orchard sort of on the ground in various ways. It was hundreds of people. You know, um, some were there often all the time. Some came one day and like, you know, shoveled manure or came one day and like helped line, you know, dig some, you know, ditches or something, all kinds of stuff. But there were hundreds of people involved on the ground. There's a sort of understanding I got early on was that we came around because we loved the idea of the slogan that Amy came up with was free fruit for all. We just, we all kind of were like, oh yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. <laughs> we, we go over that. And then we also like in the process of doing that, I think I can speak for myself, but I think this is a common thing. If you ask most of these people, there was something so moving about participating in something that you may not in fact be around to enjoy. So doing this thing for other people, you know, because fruit trees, they don't like just immediately start bearing fruit, you know, and they might start really bearing fruit, you know, a while down the road. For instance, the great story is that there's a so there's the main the main orchard, but across the street, there's now a, a nut planting and nut trees. Some nut trees um, don't start to bear for <laughs> decades, you know, or start to get into their full bearing in decades. So um, and some of them continue to bear for hundreds of years. So it's really a kind of planting where, you know, if these trees stay around, they're just like you just left this thing behind. You know, you, you got to chip in on leaving this thing behind as things have been left behind for you. Part of the magic of this project was one sort of considering the a certain kind of brutality that we like a kind of footprint into the future that I feel like a certain mode of quote unquote progress can feel like it needs to do like design things to last forever. You know, some of those things being like, you know, the shit that's going to be in the ocean forever or ruining a landscape forever. And then there are these other things that maybe we might be able to sort of leave into the future. And that's what I'm thinking about right here. I even gave a talk about this. There's a little essay somewhere. It's called, pretty good title, Body Musics and the Empire of Time. And in it, I suggest that maybe it's not such a good idea for us to want to take up space into the future to impose our art, our lives, our anything through time. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should just do our work for the here and now. Well, I'm afraid we don't really have a choice in the matter, turns out. Bummer. What we do in the here and now exists already beneath your boot soles in the future. Look for me there. Look for me when you turn on your air conditioner. Look for me when the hurricane is coming. Look for me as this this virus that used to live in the depths of the forest enters your body. Look for me when you're having an asthma attack. Look for me when the parched tree snaps into flame. Look for me as you run, taking only your skin with you. Look for me as you build your boat. 
look for me in the wreckage or look for me in the orchard. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I love that. I mean, it's kind of a lot, like a little microcosm of just like the pain that we've endured and also the hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the things I think is kind of magic about gardening and about orcharding and about planting things that are, that have a kind of long, possibly a long life is it is a connection to the future one way or another, you know, whether or not you believe in the future, whether or not you believe whatever it is, it is a gesture that, that may very well provide some support to people in the future, which is, you know, it's, if there's such a thing as a gesture of hope, <laughs> Planting a tree seems to be one of them. Yeah. I mean, you talk about earlier in a different essay about how basically not having to access a green space, a tree or a garden. At first, you know, you're saying how other people say like it's, it's a privilege to be able to have a garden, but then you move it further to say, basically it's, it's a violence, not, to have a connection to something green and natural. And what if we sort of changed both the structure of how we provide access to green, but also the way we think about it? That's a thing. I feel like I remember at some point, I don't know, someone asking me to write an essay about gardening that that sort of contends with the, the quote unquote privilege of gardening or whatever. I'm not exactly sure how it came to me where I read it or heard it or was who I was thinking with, but it, it came very clearly that, oh, there's a way that this idea of privilege is, is can be kind of uh, utilized to maintain structures of violence and stru- structures of deprivation, as opposed to being like the, the saying the thing, saying that violence is in fact disprivilege, which is to say also that violence is action. To say that it's a privilege almost sort of almost the way that I sort of think of it, it almost sort of makes it closer to the will of the gods. So the the unequal distribution of wealth, it it can feel like, well, you know, some, some privileged as opposed to, you know, like you don't have a place to, to get your zucchini or grow your zucchini or whatever. Um, you don't have access to clean water, for instance. Um, you don't have access to not being bombed. You know, I'm just so privileged not to be like, you know, being bombed right now. Actually, it's it's a, it's such a corruption of the notion of what what we all deserve. Actually, it's a corruption. It's not a privilege. In a way, to make it a privilege suggests that I think I think it, it suggests or makes it reasonable that not everyone gets to have privileges. That's just not how it works. You know, only some people are going to be privileged. But I think to frame it as it's a disprivilege means, and and again to say that it means it's an action, also might mean that it's actionable. You know, like like you can you can reverse the disprivilege. You can attend to the disprivilege and make it and take it away. And they go, oh yeah, that's right. There shouldn't be drums bombs dropping on this person, on these people. There shouldn't be bombs dropping. Right. That's right. There shouldn't be, you know, you should be able to turn on your water and drink it. You know, that's right. That's right. It's not, it's not actually a privilege that I can. It's a disprivilege that anyone can. Yeah. And I think you, you talk about this notion in many different ways in terms of the harm that is done just being alive. In some ways, there's nothing good because like you said earlier, like here we are meeting over Zoom, but how many young Chinese people worked to make this iPhone in subpar conditions? Like, 
if you think about it too much, you just kind of fall down into a pile of weeping, which you do consider. It's really heavy when you're talking about joy, but it's reality. Yeah, it's totally reality. And it's sort of like, I think one of the things about joy, I think, is that it's a profoundly impure emotion. You know, it's impure. And I think that joy is not interested in innocence. I think joy is actually interested in connection and this sort of muddiness of our, of our cohabitation or our, our being together. You know, so it's like, I think joy understands complicity. Joy understands harm, actually, too. Joy might actually give us, because it, because it understands that we're connected to one another and we are not, quote unquote, innocent or pure, like it's not interested in that, might be more likely to incite us to try to remedy the various harms that by being creatures, we, we will commit, you know? I think that's one of the things that feels so kind of exciting or enlivening or dangerous actually about joy is that it, I think by emerging from our, conne- our understanding, our connection to one another and illuminating our connection to one another, it reminds us that our connection to one another is actually what might save us, you know, and what has always saved us. <laughs> it's never been like, you know, it's never been the institutions. It's always been our neighbor. It's always been, you know, the person down the street. It's always been, it's just been us. Yeah. So that's kind of how I think about it. And it's dangerous, you know, it's dangerous. You know, if we share our shit, that's dangerous. Things fall apart. Yeah. I think there's also something like subversive about joy in the way that you write about it. You have an essay in here. It's called Dispatch from the Ruins School, the 11th Incitement. And you're talking about like changes at the university because they want to see like all the outcomes and they want all this data and no one wants to be an English major anymore. No one wants to study the classics, which is what I went to your your university for. I studied English and religion. That's probably like no one there anymore. But one of the things you talk about that I really got into this idea and see if you can follow my thinking through if I can articulate it. But you you were talking about how you were rethinking the workshop, uh, the writing, the classic work, writing workshop out of and, and giving everybody A's in the beginning. So you're taking all the pressure off, which is so against sort of what the school was looking for. And instead, what you do in class is you assign your your students things like create a performance in where there must be silence or a flower or make an atlas of glee or build uh, puppets out of trash with a 60 second opera. So you have all these different things that the students are doing instead of like picking apart each other's writing. And my sense of that is that through exercises like this, their writing does get deeper because they're getting more in touch with what is most human in them and that they're gaining more confidence in that humanity and they're finding like truth and beauty in other ways so that they could go back to their work and maybe make it deeper. Totally. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I remember, and I, I talk in that essay a lot about the writer, um, Fred Moten and, um, and his, his collaborator friend, Stefano Harney, there's a book called the Undercomments that, you know, but it was Fred Moen. I remember seeing him talking, saying, talking about another teacher of his, I think, who said, yeah, he, he just gives everyone an A so they can actually think, they can actually do work without having to sort of worry about doing what someone wants, might want of them. Um, and then, you know, if you hear like people like Noam Chomsky talking about like how school has been corrupted by this imposition of like grading and all of this nonsense and other people too, you know, my partner, like for a long time has been like, it's just cynical. It's just cynical grading. Those exercises, kind of putting those exercises or just thinking of those exercises, which are always sort of collaborative. And I learned them a lot, like a friend of mine who's like a theater artist. I'll see her do her stuff or like other people who are like music people, like kind of listen to what they do or learn what they do and kind of adapt stuff. Or like reading Linda Berry, um, who's an amazing, you know, graphic artist and and a sort of famous teacher. Um, like seeing a little bit of the stuff that she does or reading her books. I find, and I'm curious about the ways that people, if we build these weird exercises where, you know, the chops that we've developed already can kind of come into play, but we also really become an expert. We really become beginners in a way, I guess, you know? So we have all our chops, but we also become beginners and we can't actually, like the aspiration toward mastery is like out the window. 
Like we're not going to be masters here. We're really going to be sort of followers of a process, witnesses to a process. And the things that we make all the time are going to be like moments of, of beauty that we never on our own could have made just because, just because we were given the opportunity to sort of um, get out of our way. You know, um, and again, like I'm not saying that um, it's because I'm a great <laughs> teacher that people come up with things that are uh, remarkably brilliant all the time. Really, what I'm saying is that we come up with these little prompts or these little exercises that really dislodge us from being good, which school is really about. School's really about proving that you're good. And if there are ways, and I know there are a million ways that people do it, and um, anyone, I want to hear all of them. <laughs> If we're able to sort of get rid of what that aspiration toward or like the goal of being good and instead sort of be like curious, by which maybe we're going to make beautiful things, but inconceivably beautiful things too. That's what I want to do. So I think, yes, you exactly, I mean, yes, I follow your thread perfectly. <laughs> and what about being really lost outside of the classroom? There, there were some elements in your essay where you talk about times where I think you were lost, where you felt like mental illness had come to get you, where yeah. you were trying to bear witness to maybe other people's pain and you couldn't, and you were honest about yeah. that. Yeah. And th that was also in some essays where you're talking about maybe the lack of tears that you've cried in your life or the, or the link between tears and, and joy and tears and masculinity. So yeah. just wanted to probe that a little more about bearing witness and, and what was so scary for you maybe. Yeah. That, that one essay, that grief, sweet essay, it's a, <laughs> it's an essay, you know, I'm sort of thinking about grief, but I'm thinking about, um, but I start off, <laughs> Because I start talking about football and I start, <laughs> and I'm sort of like embarrassed to say, I'm going to talk about masculinity. You know, it's an essay ostensibly about masculinity, but I think it's really about grief. Um, and I say, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I'm going to start this by talking about football, <laughs> football and crime. <laughs> but anyway, I feel like one of the things that I'm learning, I, I've learned and I am learning the process of learning is that grief is like, I think, you know, and again, like sort of paying attention to my own grief, paying attention to my mother's grief has been like sort of a profound um, thing in my life and paying attention, her, her grief that is like, you know, like grief, her, her husband of 35 years died and paying attention to that and also witnessing myself being terrified actually of that grief and, and having all kinds of sort of convoluted, you know, mechanisms that my brain is up to to kind of, you know, mind is whatever is up to trying to like hold that at bay, I think. And I think what I kind of come to in that essay is that, oh, the issue is that grief can be subsuming, of course, grief can, or consuming, grief can take you all the way in. But grief also terrifyingly reminds you that you're, you're not, you're connected to other people, you know, and there's a way that I feel like among the brutalities of, of, you know, masculinity, I'm always putting quotation marks around masculinity to me and like this, whatever, this vague and complicated thing is that it's the nightmare of um, needlessness, you know, like in a certain kind of way to be a man is to be able to take care of everything and to be able to like, is basically to be, to need nothing, you know? And in that way, I think it overlaps with the, with the nightmare of like whiteness, you know, and some other nightmares too. And that nightmare of needlessness means that among the things you are not going to do probably is be devastated by, by your loss. You're not going to be probably devastated. You're not probably going to grieve because to grieve means that you, you needed something and now it's gone or, or something changed in a way that you will forever be different on account of. That feels like a thing that I, that I will spend my life trying to sort of continue to learn about, pay attention to. Yeah. I was going to ask if writing that essay sort of moved you to a place where you felt more comfortable bearing witness to other people's pain in that way. I think it definitely has. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, sort of articulating my own like fear, my own terror, I would say at sometimes at other people's, particularly people who I really am very close to is grief witnessing that and understand, oh, part of that is that I'm, uh, I'm about to be moved. Like I'm about to be moved. And when you're moved, that's evidence that you're movable, 
that's evidence that you are not discreet. You're not like a an isolated <laughs> dude walking through the world. <laughs> You're actually like frail and needy, you know, and you want who you love to be okay. And and when they're not, you're not. That's actually the condition of being a creature. You know, it's not like it's not like a a special thing. It's like it's the condition of being a creature. And I, I feel like that's uh, yeah. I think in the process of writing this book, I, I've, I'm continuing to learn how to articulate that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, I would argue, and you're welcome to argue back, that you're yeah. trafficking in that. That you're trafficking in in mo- moving people that that's what poetry and essays does that you are confronting this but maybe there's a way in which when you create it you're not exactly with it because you're doing something with it yeah it's a great question it's a great yeah it's a great point like um I could imagine totally you know like because we are complicated to sort of be not wanting to be moved but wanting to move In fact, that's like, you know, to come back to the beginning of that essay, that football essay, that's in a way, that's what like playing defensive end is. Not wanting to be moved, but wanting to move, you know? That's what a lot of the sort of cultivation of, you know, my, um, the ways that I was trained up in a way to be a man was. It was like not wanting to be moved, uh, but wanting to move. I wanted to ask you something technical and then we'll get to some of the final questions, which was you have a lot of footnotes and your footnotes are sometimes pages. And I just wanted to ask you about that, like technically and how they fit into the narrative. You know, I'm like, I love marginalia. Like I love endnotes. I love footnotes. I love, especially like lyric footnotes or lyric, you know, lyric marginalia. I'm into And I, I can't remember how these footnotes started to show up, but they showed up right away when I was writing these essays. But I can't remember, I can't remember like how or why exactly. But I do know that the first footnotes that I read that I just loved were in Juno Diaz's uh, novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. And there are these moments in that I'd never seen it before. And it's the use of the footnote to sort of say what I didn't fit in above. Like it's like the author is stepping out from behind the the story to to fill some things in like stuff you might need to know and for years i've been kind of like curious about that and think about that and then you know the way that i think about it is that one i think about it as a kind of structure of intimacy or a structure of closeness actually like a way by which i can reach across the page a little bit and be like you know shove you on the wrist and be like hang on you got to know this thing too like you got to know this extra thing for this whole thing to make sense you know, it's another structural way for me to to say, I got to tell you this too. I want you to know this other thing too. But when you said like, how does it relate to the narrative? It's that, but it's also like, um, there's something, there's something definitely at play about the undercurrent of the book, you know, the footnote, the note that's beneath the body of the text, periodically taking over the text itself so that the footnote becomes really what's the only thing on the page. So that what's beneath comes to the surface, you know, becomes the surface. There's something to that about that too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One of my favorite facts in this book was that you did other people's homework for money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't that good at it either. That's the funny thing. <laughs> but did, you got paid extra if you got an A, didn't you? Yeah, I get paid a little extra if I got an A. I don't know how many A's I got, but I got a few, I think. <laughs> um. And you mentioned this, but, you know, it does come back to this whole point that we belong to each other. That's the thing. That's like what I think what uh, gives us meaning in our lives, witnessing that and then behaving accordingly. We're trying to figure out how to behave accordingly. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Here's a poem. Um, it's one of my favorite poems in the world. And I mentioned it actually in the book, in the teaching essay, maybe. And it's Steve Scafidi's poem, The Boy Inside the Pumpkin. 
At 530 pounds, it won the blue ribbon at the Frederick County Fair. And because all such vegetables are too bitter to eat, something had to be done. And it was decided to haul the pumpkin to the river and the boy inside the pumpkin, meanwhile, lay curled in the dark mash while they rolled it to the edge of the tailgate and heaved it to the ground. And he must have been in there all spring and all summer and through the long, hot hours, must have grown restless in the goop, although he looked almost peaceful lying naked by the river among the broken loaves and the seeds where the ambulance drivers stood on their knees amazed beside the boy opening his eyes as the slow Potomac moved to the Chesapeake Bay and the ocean where the waves make their way to every coast in the world. And the boy inside the pumpkin lies quietly in this world like a fact of the unlikely and the most unlikely things happen every day in this world. And we go on unchanged. And a body was found on a baseball diamond in Frederick, Maryland last spring, wearing only a t-shirt face down with both arms underneath the body. And the details are listed in the Metro section of the Washington Post. And so when you read about the child, you learn he was only nine years old and had a faint birthmark, the exact shape of Kentucky on the small of his back and could talk like a duck when he wanted to. And you learn the most unspeakable things in the slender metro section of the Washington Post. And it corrupts your sense of the world to know how often the impossible happens upon us without mercy. And it is not the fit subject of poetry. And it is offensive to redeem the horror of that boy's last hours. But I can't stop trying to salvage something from the murderous and the poisonous. And last spring, some small, ordinary blossom grew suddenly more gigantic every day. And the boy inside the vine became the boy inside the pumpkin who became a turning in the darkness no one noticed. Although for a week, hundreds of people at the fair stroked the fat sides of the pumpkin and were amazed. And a boy leans up on his elbows now in the moss beside the river and looks around bewildered and asks for his mother and his father. And they are delivered, amazed. And these things never happen. They happen every day. Do you want to say anything more about why you chose that? There's a kind of ethics to it that you know, when I first read that poem, I think the book came out in 2006 and I probably read it right around then that, that, that question that like one of our, one of, one of our, I don't know, jobs or whatever as poets is like to sort of witness something, the unwitnessable or something like to, that the idea of redemption itself is there's something impossible about it, but still like we, we want to sing the possible world or something, you know, there's something so moving to me about that. It, it's a poem that almost every time I read it, you know, makes me want to cry. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is from my last book. It's called Beholding. It was, it's, a, it's a long poem. It's a book that I've been working on. The poem I, like officially started in 2015. I started working on it in 2015. But, but I realized that I'd actually been starting. I started working on it in 2013. And it's one long poem. And the poem is effectively like it sort of starts with a meditation on this move by Dr. J from the 1983 NBA finals. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and it just departs and it, it's thinking about, you know, um, racism and, you know, nation and family and ancestry and blah, 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 all this stuff. And it departs, but it keeps on coming back to this image that's being described again and again and again. And I, the story is that I was sort of, I'd been working on it for a long time and I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm ever going to finish this poem. Like, I do not know how to get to the end of actually Dr. J making the shot. I just didn't know how, like whatever ha needed to happen had not yet happened. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. This is one of these moments where like in an essay, there seems like there can be a little bit more will with an essay, but this was like, I don't know, like, I can't will this thing to happen. Anyway, so toward the end of the poem, I'm sort of describing being um, swimming with my father the way, you know, like, you know, if you're a kid, you can hang on to a big person and they swim and they go underwater and you hang on to them. He reached through the water, pulling us with him, 
reaching toward him to keep from sailing off. How many million eyes in the wake flashing their light at us, clinging to one another, lit by their looking. And how my face to my dad's shoulder, my shoulder to my brother's face was a kind of breathing and soaring. As a child, I could breathe underwater, my father pulling us through the thick air, pulling us through the pulling us by reaching his arms as far forward as he could and dragging them back toward us to keep us from falling, to keep from falling. Like that, he'd be holding us. And in this way flew some from the overboard and likewise, and likewise showed us how to fly some from the overboard by reaching toward what you love, which is not a citizen, citizenship we talking about, but a practice despite the hold, a practice that spites the hold, spites the overboard. We in here talking about the reaching that makes a falling flight. Do you see what I'm saying? We're in here talking about holding each other, which is a practice. We talking about holding our breath. How long have we been? And how can I be holding yours and you be holding mine? This is my question, I think. How might I be holding your breathing and you be holding mine? A practice we talking about, the, the reaching that makes a falling flight. We in here talking about the practice of the beholden, a practice of being beholden, talking about how might I hold my beholden out to you and you hold yours out to me. How do we be holding each other? How do we be beholden to each other? Which is really to say, how do we be? A practice we talking about, a practice might be that we in here talking about joy. We in here talking about joy, which might be to say, depending on how you look at it, we in here talking about destroying the world for the world, bound in gratitude like this. And, you know, like the, the thing is that one thing that I'm so glad to read that is because it's just like someone pointed this out to me recently that you seem to be working things out for your next book and your previous book. And it's like, oh, that's... <laughs> There it is. I was like sort of figuring out this definition. <laughs> it's like, what is this thing? And, you know, really uh, that whole moment is really deeply kind of indebted to this writer, Christina Sharp, and then, you know, other folks, but like, but it's also indebted to um, Alan Iverson, uh, the basketball player, Alan Iverson, who has sort of a famous, what I think of as like a refusal, um, a beautiful refusal um, where he's being, he's being interviewed and, and he keeps saying, we're, we talk, we're in here talking about practice. Like you all want to talk, you know, you all want to talk to me about practice. Like I'm the MVP and we're in here talking about practice, you know, and embedded in that whole thing is like there, what I see is that he's like, I'm always practicing. You have no idea. You have no idea. You can never understand it. But for some reason, I was in Cincinnati. I was going to go find the end of this poem. It wasn't working. I went to this coffee shop like the last day that I was there. You know, it's just like getting away. Like, come on, like, you got to find this poem. It was like this kind of dumpy, great little dumpy coffee shop, you know, though I remember, I'll never forget it. There was like a little writing group going on over there, multi-generational writing group. group. It was so sweet. And they were working on poems and helping each other out. And I was just like, it's not going to happen. And then boop, that, that, that grammatical structure, we talk, we in here talking about practice is what he was saying. And so Alan Iverson's came into the poem and sort of like helped me to get to where it needed to be. But God, I was trying hard and thank God, <laughs> thank God he arrived when he did. That's, that's such an amazing beauty, I think, of being a writer is those magical alchemal moments, you know? Yeah. Yes, me too. Where do you write? I write wherever, you know, it used to be that I'd write, you know, always at coffee shops or, you know, but I... I kind of these days I write kind of wherever, you know, and I think that changed when I started writing these delights back in 2016 or whatever, because I had a daily writing practice. So kind of whenever I could get 30 minutes of wherever I was when I had that. But I'm in a studio right now where I write. I write in my bed. I love to write in my bed. <laughs> I write it right at coffee shops. If I'm like on an airplane, I'll write on an airplane wherever. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, I don't know that I'm ever like trying to get away from writing, but it's funny. It's a funny thing to say, but I feel like I read in a way, 
even though reading is obviously so formative to my, it's how I, it's really how I write as I read. It's also the case that I can really put my own writing away, really away if I get deeply into someone else's writing. And, and it's sort of fun. Like I recently was re- realizing that when I'm revi- revising really hard and I'm sort of just in it all the time that I can sort of get a little bit like I can't focus. Like it's hard for me to read other work. And I had, I had the experience not too long ago of witnessing myself having some trouble getting into a book and then falling into it. It just, it was a nice thing. And I realized when I was in it, oh, I'm not thinking about my writing at all. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Again, my partner and uh, my buddy, Pat, um, another poet, my friend Adeselius, another writer, beloved. You know, I share work with my, you know, my students, the folks that I'm in class with, you know, because we were always sharing work. And so even the the newest thing I'm working on, it's just kind of the thing I'm working on this semester. So when we're all sharing work, like I'll share little bits of that. You know, my buddy, Chris, my buddy, Dave, I have, I am lucky. I'm blessed with, with uh, readers. How have you dealt with rejection? I think, okay. <laughs> I feel like, you know, that, that, that thing of being a, being a writer is one of the things you learn, or I was definitely, you know, Thomas Lux was my teacher. He's a really beautiful poet out at Sarah Lawrence college. Um, he taught, uh, he was my teacher. He's gone now. He's died now. Lovely guy and a good teacher. And, and he, I mean, it was Tom who kind of instilled in us like, you know, you send stuff out when it comes back, which it's mostly going to do. You just, this is in the old days. You throw it in another envelope and put another stamp on it and put it right in there. Like don't even, don't reprint it. Just put it right in another envelope and send it. So I feel like maybe he kind of blessed me with a, with a, with a relationship to it. That's like, okay. And the more, you know, the, in a way, the older I get, though, it's true that I'm, I'm, more often asked for things than, you know, when I was young, you know, so like maybe it's less rejection in that way. It's also the case that I fully understand that people are people. And so when people are choosing things, we are people. So you kind of can't like the idea of being rejected or accepted, quote unquote, you can't let that be too much information. I feel like in a little bit of a way, that's just like who the confluence of people were, what they drank for, you know, ate for breakfast, what they're into, this and that. And I, and it's funny because I know I'm going on and on about this, but partly because I'm a, I'm a teacher, I teach graduate students and I sort of witness sometimes their emotions changing significantly based on whether or not they were accepted or rejected from a journal or from a thing or that the prize or a residency. And though it's lovely to get everything just so you can have more time to write. And like, you know, it's nice to win some money. That's all important. Pay rent. There's this other thing that I sort of try to like help people think about and remember, which is that if you are imagining that a prize is determining whether your work is like the work that it needs to be, that might be a mistake, you know? So yeah, maybe that's why the idea of like acceptance or rejection is a little bit different for me. I am though, really wanting good and honest feedback from the people who love me, which sometimes will be like, this isn't good. And that's that I I want that. I need that. Um, And it's a kind of rejection that is actually a kind of acceptance. (laughs) And what is your favorite word? I know I don't have a favorite word. (laughs) I don't have a favorite word. I have so I have words that I use a lot, you know, (laughs) like for some reason, this book, I think I use the word adamant a lot. Like I noticed this because my editor circles, it's like, again, you know, the red bud, the red bud tree. Like I love red buds, (laughs) the word tithonia, which is like a kind of a flower. You know, I I know that my editor is going to be like, yo, too much Tithonia, but it's a good word <laughs> and it's a beautiful flower. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. It's really good to talk to you. Really fun. If you like today's show with Ross Gay, author of Inciting Joy, check out my interview with Terry Tempest Williams. We talked about hope, the meaning of erosion and the great joy she finds in teaching. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tracy K. Smith, Elizabeth McCracken, and Peter Orner. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.